Well, good morning and welcome to the Family Bible Hour once again. I'm sort of deviating a little bit today. Had a conversation with my granddaughter the other day about scriptural things and she was concerned about a friend who supposedly thinks she's a Christian but does not know the first thing about Christianity. I think it's a common thing. Last week, David spoke on the topic of what is a Christian? And in that message, he focused on five very relevant and crucial questions concerning one's salvation. The first question being, how do you know you are saved? How do you know? And if we are honest with ourselves, we will have to admit that most of the so-called Christian churches today are filled with innumerable false professors of the faith, who not only cannot say that they are saved, but also who do not have any knowledge of the authentic biblical gospel of salvation, the gospel which the Apostle Paul said that he was not ashamed of because it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it in Romans 1, 16 to 18. And so for this morning, I've decided to put on hold our study of the book of Exodus and instead carry on with the theme of salvation and in particular the question, how do you know if you are really saved? Can you know for certain? And so our main text for our message this morning comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, and we'll in, endeavor to answer the question, how do you know for sure that you are really saved? Verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then, I, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. May God grant us the grace to understand the text before us this morning. But first, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank thee for thy word, for without it, we would have no idea of the state that we are in. We would not know that there is a God who loves us and that sent his only begotten son to die on the cross of Calvary on our behalf. Father, we pray that as we open thy word this morning, that the spirit of God will be pleased to enlighten and illuminate our understanding as to the text before us. And Lord, if there be even one here among us this morning who is not certain of their salvation, 
We pray that this might be the day that they might be assured that they are one of thine. And if not, Lord, that they might trust thee as their Savior and their Lord today. For we ask it in our Savior's name and for his glory. Amen. The title of uh, this morning's message, and I've spoken on this some 25 years ago, I think, for the first time, and uh, have spoken occasionally on it at other assemblies. I never knew you, is the title. And what frightening words to hear coming from someone whom you believe to be your Savior and Lord, and to be told that this Jesus whom you profess to know as your Lord and Savior would someday look you in your eyes as you stood face to face before him and to be told, I never knew you. And yet that is exactly what the scriptures say will happen someday. There is a day coming when every man, woman, and child will have to stand before Jesus Christ the only Savior of the world, and give a personal account to him for the way one has lived. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, 11, 12, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every one of us here in this auditorium this morning must also stand before the living God and give an account of how we have lived. Now that is a sobering thought, even to a Christian. It should cause us to tremble and to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. To think that even Christians who have been forgiven all their sins on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ will still have to someday stand before God and his holy angels and other believers and give an account of themselves. All believers will stand before Christ after the rapture, where their lives and life service for Christ will be evaluated and their works judged to see whether they be of wood, hay, stubble, or of gold, silver, and precious stones. Our salvation will never be in question, for it was already settled at the cross of Calvary. But our works will be in question. That is where the true motives of the heart and the attitudes of the mind will be revealed. Were they really done in the spirit or in the flesh? Were they done for self or were they done for Christ? But this passage in Matthew 7.21 is not talking about the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of of all true believers is taking place in heaven and will take place immediately after the rapture of the church. But this particular scene in Matthew 7, 21 will take place upon this earth in Israel as the Lord returns from heaven with all of his holy angels and the redeemed of the Lord to destroy the Antichrist and end the battle at Armageddon. When all the dust settles, the Lord will be seated upon his throne of glory and will judge the nations of the earth. And as they all appear before him, 
those who will still be alive after those terrible years of the Great Tribulation, many will hear these cold and chilling words coming from the Lord's mouth, I never knew you. There will be millions who thought they were Christians, as there are millions today who think they are Christians, but have never been truly born again of the Spirit of God. They will be those who have professed some form of religion, some form of belief system, but not the true faith that is required for the redeeming of their souls. And they will be told, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Please notice that there are four areas in which danger lies and may lead one into making a false profession of faith. And each one of them is an outward sign. And the first of these is false speech. False speech. Notice that the Lord says in verse 29 of uh, chapter 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is such a thing as proper speech or proper terminology in the Christian walk. It is only proper and fitting to address the Lord Jesus as Lord or Master or Savior. However, it is amply clear from Scripture that true believers were not the only ones who used these terms, but that the unsaved also use them. On more than one occasion, the Lord rebuked his hearers for calling him Lord, but not for giving him his rightful lordship. That necessarily must follow. In Mark 7, verses 6 to 7, the Lord sternly rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes who accused his disciples of not holding to the tradition of elders by washing their hands before they ate. Jesus answered them by saying, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And another time when our Lord was delivering the Beatitudes on the Mount of Olives in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he warned, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It is possible to honor God by one's words, by one's speech. It is possible to have a reverence in communication when speaking to or speaking about God and the things of God and still be lost. We need only to look around us today and see how much the so-called Orthodox Church has strayed from the truth of Scripture, but its speech still remains godly. And then, needless to say, the millions who are caught up in the cults 
and with their lips they honor the Lord by giving him his rightful title. But this does not constitute true profession. What does then constitute true profession? In the second half of that 21st verse, the Lord gives us the true test. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. What does that mean, to do the will of the Father? What was the Father's will? First and foremost, it was the Father's will that all men hear his Son. In Matthew 17, 1 to 8, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus to a mountain where the Lord is transfigured before their eyes. And they stand in amazement as Moses and Elijah appear before them and begin talking with Jesus. The three disciples, though they meant well, suggested that they should build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, the three disciples had just witnessed a most incredible sight. They had seen with their very own eyes what no human eyes had ever seen before. They saw resurrected in some mysterious form Moses and Elijah, two of the greatest Old Testament prophets that had ever lived. And they were talking with their Lord, and so their intentions were good. But their worship was misplaced when they were about to put Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus Christ. That is why they heard in verse 5 of Matthew 17, the Father's stern rebuke from heaven, setting them straight. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Never mind Moses, never mind Elijah, they were only prophets who foretold the coming of my son. They were only men. But now that my son is here, give him your full attention. Give him your full honor and give him your full worship and only him. And then what could be clearer than the words of Jesus himself when he said in John 6.40, And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The will of the Father is for all men to hear his Son and to believe on him. And in order for men to believe on him, they must first hear what he is saying. Listen to the Son's words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because 
he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 16 to 18. That is the true test of real profession, to believe on the Son whom the Father hath sent. And then the words, Lord, Lord, will have real meaning and significance both to the sinner and the Savior alike. So beware of false speech. And the second area in which there is a danger and may lead one into making a false profession is false ministry. False ministry, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not taught about you in your name? Have we not testified or witnessed in your name? Have we not prophesied in thy name? Now, this one indeed is a very delicate one. It is possible for the unsaved to be prophesying or teaching in the name of the Lord. It is possible for the unsaved to deliver a gospel message. It is possible for the unsaved to sing hymns of praises and worship unto the Lord. It is possible for the unsaved and quite prevalent for the unsaved to be acting as elders, as pastors, as youth workers, as Sunday school teachers, as missionaries, and still be lost. We have examples all around us today. A good example from the Old Testament is Balaam, a hireling prophet who sought to make market of his gift in the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, 24, and 31. He was a false prophet who prophesied in the name of the Lord but was not sanctioned nor sanctified by God. In the New Testament, we see Judas, who had as much of a ministry to the Lord's people as did the other disciples. He not only taught in the name of the Lord, but he also did many wonderful things in the name of the Lord and even cast out demons out of the possessed. We read in Matthew 10, 5 to 8, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the devils, freely ye have received, freely give. What a sobering thought. Neither is it ministry. That is the test, true test of the new birth. For we see that there have been in those uh, those in the past who did precisely this. They prophesied or taught in the name of God, but were still lost and strangers to the saving grace of God. As there are many today who prophesy in the name of God, many who have great followings and many who have great churches and credentials. And I suppose one of the largest and most popular ministries on television today is Joel Austin, 
who professes to be a true minister of the gospel, but who also denies the necessity of the crosswork of Christ in saving mankind from the penalty of sin and a Christless eternity in hell. All religions seem equal in his sight. When those who prophesy in the name of God prophesy different doctrines than the Lord himself did, then we should be wary. We should mark them and avoid their teachings, lest we be also led astray by them. And they are all around us today. Outwardly, they are very religious and very active, but inwardly, they have never been born again by the Spirit of God. So beware of false ministry. Then the third area in which a danger lies in making a false profession is false spiritual gifts. That same verse, Matthew 7, 22, warns also about false gifts. And in thy name have cast out devils. Well, how can that be? How can a person have a spiritual gift for doing miracles, even such as raising people from the dead or healing the sick and casting out demons and still be lost? How can that be? It is an elementary error among the unsaved to automatically attribute all signs and wonders as spiritual gifts from God. But that is not always the case. There is one whom the Bible calls the great liar, the one who deceives the whole world and blinds men's minds to the truth of the gospel of salvation. And his name is Satan, the great adversary. And the word of God warns us very clearly and quite often about him. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so it is quite possible to be endowed with spiritual gifts from Satan and be deceived into thinking it is from God. Remember that the magicians of Egypt were endowed with many supernatural powers and challenged Moses for a long time. They too could change their rods into live serpents. They too could turn water into blood. They too could supernaturally summon myriads of frogs from nowhere. But they were lost. They did not know experientially the true living God. Then we also read in Revelation 13, 13 to 15, about the Antichrist who is yet to make his entrance into the world scene one day. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship, the image of the beast should be killed. Satan 
is clearly the source of this power which his man, the Antichrist, will be given after the church is raptured. And it will certainly be an age characterized by many strange wonders and signs, but not all of them will be from God. Unfortunately, even today, the occult is rampant and is finding inroads into the Christian church. The Roman Catholic Church, for many generations, has claimed to have witnessed signs and wonders and great miracles of healings. The charismatic and Pentecostal movement bases much of its practice around these wonders, such as healings and tongues and casting out unclean spirits. There are ministries all around us today whose focal point or focus is healing and faith healers. But we, as the Lord's people, must be discerning and careful to not get involved in things which the Lord did not commission us to do. We are sent to the uttermost parts of the world to be his witnesses, to be witnesses of his birth, death, and resurrection, and his soon return for the church. We are to clearly present the salvation and the coming judgment of Jesus Christ and to have as our authority the testimony of Scripture alone, not spiritual manifestations to verify our testimony. Those with counterfeit spiritual gifts will not enter into the kingdom of God on that basis. So beware of false spiritual gifts. This now brings us to the fourth area in which a danger lies in making a false profession, that of doing wonderful works, false wonderful works. Verse 22, the latter part. And in thy name done many wonderful works. What a frightening thought. Here we see many standing before the Lord in that day of judgment, expecting to enter the kingdom of heaven because they thought they had done many wonderful works in his name. And yet they may have done these works sincerely. And they may have done them without a selfish motive and even at a great sacrifice and a cost both to themselves and their families. They may have even done an extraordinary job at that, even benefiting mankind as a whole. Now, I want to point out that these are not total pagans who have no concept of who Christ was. These are not necessarily wicked cultists or occultists, but rather professing believers who have had a basic understanding of the Christian or Judeo message because they are said to have done it in thy name, in the name of Jesus, whatever their concept of him may have been. So these who will eventually be kept out of the kingdom of heaven are not whom we would classify as desperately wicked and evil men. They may in fact be very good people, very religious people, but people who have missed the central thrust of the gospel of salvation, 
we must never forget the scripture's best example of a professing believer who walked with the Lord, who talked with the Lord, and did in fact many wonderful works in his name, but in the end was never really saved. Judas, Judas Iscariot. And dear friends, we have many such today among us in the professing church at large. We cannot recognize them from true believers because the outward signs are often almost the same. They could be interspersed amongst the true believers who labor in helping the poor or looking after the sick. They may be amongst those who have been called to build churches and teach Sunday school. They may even be scattered throughout the foreign mission field, spreading some sort of gospel among the heathen. The Mormons are a good example of this today. I know I was once involved with them. Or they may be toiling amongst the oppressed and downtrodden in the slums of India, like the late Mother Teresa of the Roman Catholic Church. They may even be amongst the flock which is faithful in going to church every Sunday and giving quite heavily to the local church. They may even be amongst the angelic voices that sing in our church choirs each Sunday. But dearly beloved, all of this is in vain, and we must be discerning. If they have never been born again by the Spirit of God, or if they have never believed with all of their heart and mind on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary's cross and have never entrusted their soul to his keeping, based on his shed blood alone, as the one sufficient sacrifice for all of their sins, then, dearly beloved, we must not be deluded into thinking that somehow they may also be included in the kingdom of heaven. We must be more diligent today than ever before in clearly presenting to a lost and dying world the true message of salvation. Paul writes in Romans 1, 16-18, for... I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the message of salvation is a tough message to preach today. To preach Christ crucified is forbidden in many countries. It is imminent death and persecution for the faithful ministers of the gospel. It's not a popular message anywhere in our society today. The real gospel of salvation is even removed from many so-called Christian churches. For as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Nevertheless, if we are truly saved, if we truly belong to the Lord, then we must present his gospel clearly and faithfully, because the remedy for sin today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago when a poor wretched jailer in Philippi uttered this desperate cry to the Apostle Paul and Silas, Sirs, 
what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So beware of false works. There can be no more frightening words in all of the universe coming from the lips of God than I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I hope and trust that there is no one here this morning that will ever hear those awful and condemning words coming from the lips of the Savior. For the scriptures are very clear about second chances. There are none after death. And if there should be any here this morning who might not be sure, then do not tarry. Rise and flee to the cross of Calvary. Fall on bended knee and look up at the Son of God who became the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, who hung on that cross in your place and in mine. It was there that he shed his blood in full payment for all of your sins and mine, past, present, and future. While God the Father, in his full wrath, poured out his righteous judgment on his own Son in our place for our sins. It is by faith that we receive him as our sin bearer and acknowledge his lordship in our lives from that moment on as we turn away from our sins. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then, if salvation is real, the good works will follow, and they will be of the Lord. If salvation is real, good ministry will follow, and it will be of the Lord. If salvation is real, spiritual gifts will follow, and they will be of the Lord. And if salvation is real, then the words, Lord, Lord, will be a sweet savor to the ears of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. the only Savior of all mankind. And yet, Father, our hearts are grieved at the fact that so many in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our places of occupation, are lost and have no desire for the things of God. Help us somehow, Father, to be able to reach these precious souls while there is still yet time. And Lord, there are many in the so-called churches of Christ that think they are saved, but have never been born again. Father, help us to somehow reach them as well, to point out that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Father, help us to pray unceasingly for those among our families that still need to be saved. For we ask it all in our Savior's name and for his glory.